we gather in his name to worship him and to study his word because he's real. He was very real to his followers some 2,000 years ago. He was literally bodily in their presence. He was visibly present. In fact, on one occasion, he had dinner with them. It was shortly before he would die on their behalf and ours. It was what we refer to as the Last Supper. It was his last meal with them, and it was a traditional Passover Seder, Seder meaning order. They followed a liturgy on this Passover, the likes of which has been followed for thousands of years. And in the course of that Last Supper, the Lord made three very, very disturbing statements to his followers. Uh, He, for instance, told them that one of them would betray him. And then he told them that one of them, it would be Peter, would deny him. And furthermore, he told them that he was leaving them. And so that was a very disturbing collection of messages for these believers and followers of the Lord to hear. And so They understandably were troubled by it all, and the Lord, perceiving this and knowing all things, said to them what he did in John chapter 14, verse 1. He said to them, do not let your heart be troubled. That was his message. In the Greek rendering, the tense indicates it was too late. They already began the action of being anxious and distressed. And so the Lord is essentially saying to them what you've begun to do, and that is to be stressed out, anxious, and troubled in your heart. He essentially said, stop doing it. Don't do that anymore. And he puts this, as you could see, in the form of a commandment. It's no different than the 10 big commandments. It's not a suggestion. He says, don't do this No longer let your hearts be troubled. And first, when I read that, I was a little disturbed because I thought, my goodness, that's a very weighty mandate to put upon us. But then I got encouraged by it because God is not the kind of God who would command us to do anything he feels we're unable with his supply to do. So there really is this option of not succumbing to a troubled heart. But how do you do it? How, in the midst of the troubles that you and I face, some here even tonight, Judith, Greg, Greg's father, passed away on Monday. Judith's elderly mother in California is in the midst of a very difficult time, Judith is, with regard to what's the best arrangement for her care at this particular time These are full-blown believers and followers of the Lord who have run into trouble, and to you and to me, the Lord says, be careful, though you're in the midst of troubling circumstances, do not let your heart be troubled. Well, that's a tall order, and what does the Lord say in order to help us to do this? Well, it's just what it says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. That's what he said. In other words, instead of a troubled heart, the Lord commands us to have a trusting heart. It's a command for us to trust him. He commands us, in other words, to be confident in whom he is. Dixon Murrah was one of our long-term members. 
He would be with us tonight, except he's in a far better place. He's with the Lord. Passed away, got promoted to heaven. And one of the things Dixon, a wonderful counselor and wise person, would always say to those who are troubled, he would ask two questions. I'll never forget it. He would say, after listening with compassion to a person's travail, he would ask that person, but is God sovereign and is God good? He would not dismiss the reality of the trouble. It's there. He would not move people into an altered state of consciousness. It's tough to be in this world. It hurts. There are burdens and weights that are put upon us. But Dixon would ask these two questions. I use them all the time. But is God still sovereign? Is he nonetheless still in control? Or do we give in to the cruel winds of fate? Do these troubles simply befall us whimsically and at random? Or is God still in control? The answer is yes. And is God good? If he was just in control but uncaring, we're in trouble. If he was just caring but not in control, we're in trouble. But if he is in control and caring, though we may be in trouble, we need not succumb to a troubled heart. That's the direction, I think, of what the Lord is saying. In fact, the words in his command, see where it says, you believe in God, believe also in me. The word in, in the Greek, actually is translated into. So we could read this phrase, believe into God, believe also into me. What does that mean? I think it means that Faith in Jesus is not just an intellectual thing. It has, uh, it has action to it. To believe into God, to believe into Jesus, is not just to give intellectual assent to his existence. It's to lean into him. It's to take the weight of the trouble and lean it into him so that it transfers from you onto him. If I could illustrate it foolishly, but this is the best I can come up with, you're about ready to board an airplane. There it is on the ground. You see it before you board it. You have an intellectual perspective about it. You even know something about how it works, propellers and all this other kind of stuff. Your head is filled with facts about the airplane, but it isn't until you board the airplane that you fully demonstrate your confidence in it when you get into the airplane. So too, we are commanded here not just to render intellectual assent to the existence and reality of Jesus, but to Lean into him as if to say, oh God, what troubles me is real, but your sovereignty, presence, and care are even more real. And so I'm leaning into you because I can't carry the weight of this alone. In other words, to believe into Christ is to entrust our troubles into his care. It's like this. It's like a little boy so trusting in the goodness in the uh, safeness and in the strength of his father that with abandon, he's able to throw himself into his dad's arms. That's the kind of confidence in Jesus we are commanded to render. Now, what could help us do that in times of trouble? Could I offer something that's been helpful to me? 
I think about the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf, and I just do some logical exercise, and I say to myself, I'm in trouble. I'm on the verge of having a really troubled and distressed heart, but Jesus died for me. If he did not withhold the ultimate, that is his own life, so as to redeem me, has he led me this far so as to abandon me into the atmosphere of my trouble? Or is he still there with me? Paul had something quite striking to say in this regard. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How, it's a rhetorical question, how will he, the Father, not also with him, the Son, graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the Father did not hold back his greatest, his only begotten Son, with whom he is well pleased, if he offered him to redeem us from sin, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, that is to say, help, hope, and healing in times of trouble? So the proposal offered by the Lord to stop a troubled heart from being troubled, the proposal is pretty simple and clear. It is to believe in, to have confidence in, to trust in God. But notice he says more than this. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. They believe in God. And I think the Lord is saying this to his disciples then and now. You believe in an unseen God. There'll come a day when the same will be required with reference to me because soon the Lord is saying, you won't see me. And he's saying the same thing to us. We believe in the existence of creator God, the great designer, transcendent deity, yet we have not seen him. And the Lord Jesus is saying, to the same extent you believe in that unseen God, I want you by faith to believe in me. Though I, for a while longer, remain resurrected, ascended, and out of your vision just as well. That's what he's saying. And so is your heart even as we sit in each other's company tonight, is your heart troubled? If so, I want you to know the Lord Jesus is concerned about it. He's not indifferent. He is there for you. And here I want to offer some evidence. Could you remember the context of all this? They're seated. No, they're reclining around the Passover table soon literally in hours, the Lord will experience the most excruciating form of capital punishment devised by humankind. And on the way to the cross, he'll suffer great humiliation and will be greatly pained physically and in other ways. And yet he asks not for one word of comfort from those seated around the Passover table. Instead, though this impending and imminent form of death is before him, he cares so much for those who are his own then and now that he takes the initiative in offering comfort to them and to us. He cares and so he says, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God in the same way, believe also in me. So this is about the Lord's help in the present, but there is a source of comfort that has to do not just with the believer's present, but with the believer's future. Let's move on, therefore, into the future now. 
in verse 2. In my father's house, the Lord says, are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. The disciples were saddened and distressed because the Lord said, I'm leaving you. But it was really good that he was because he went to prepare a place for them. And where is this place? Well, the Lord says in verse two, it is in my father's house. Folks, you know what that is? That is heaven. The Lord's father's house is heaven. You as a believer, though perhaps even now immersed in tough, even catastrophic circumstances, trouble, you nonetheless are destined for a permanent dwelling place, a permanent place of rest and peace and joy. Where is it? In your father's house. And so Paul, again, in essence, says this in Romans 8, 18, the pain that you've been feeling cannot compare to the joy that is coming. Look, there was, there's much we would like to know about heaven, but we can only know what we are told about heaven in Scripture. And we are told that heaven is our Father's house. Heaven is characterized, in other words, by relationship and by safety in our Father's house and, and by love in our Father's house. All our material needs in heaven for sure will be met, but material things are not the essence of the heavenly experience. What makes heaven, in fact, so heavenly is that we will be there dwelling forever in our Father's house. Now, I'm going to do something that uh, runs the risk of offending and putting off some of you. But in the interest of biblical accuracy, here I go. So before you start thinking terrible things about me in your heart and already uh, formulating the words of your email, which you're intending to send to me later tonight, can you please hear me out of first? I'm going to say this. There is a mistranslation in this text, it seems to me. And I think the mistranslation has perhaps distracted us from the essence of what heaven is like, such that many of us think of it only as a place of material blessings, when the point I want to make is no, the essence of heaven are relational, familial blessings in our Father's house. And so can you see the phrase which we've read, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Or you might have a translation that says room, rooms, or you might have a translation that says mansions. That's the mistranslation. How did we get it? There was a fellow named Jerome. He was born in A.D. 347. He was a Catholic priest and theologian. And he translated, this is a good thing, he translated the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, uh, into Latin and produced what we refer to as the Latin Vulgate. When you look to the Greek word, here in this very uh, verse, dwelling places or rooms, he translated it with a Latin word, and the word is mansiones. Then, when people took that Latin translation of the Bible and 
translated it into English, the translators came up with an English word which they thought was closest to the Latin word, not the original Greek, but the Latin word mansionis, and that was mansion. And so from that day forward, we have the word mansion in this particular verse when in fact that's not the word at all. And this word has given rise to great hymns. For instance, one of my favorites, I've got a mansion, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. You know that one? Even the way I sang it, you recognize it? So the next time I hear that one, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna keep singing it. Let's not be fanatics here. I get the whole point. But that uh, rendering in that hymn is based on uh, a mistranslation of the verse here. You see, we're not talking about mansions in the sense of, you know, swimming pools, butlers, and three-car garages. And that word has left, left many of us thinking that that's what heaven is all about. In fact, we think we'll be living in mansions kind of like this, for instance, in, in heaven, but that's not the case. The word is abiding place. That's the Greek word, abiding place or dwelling place or even rooms. And it has the notion of permanence. That's the distinguishing factor. Not that we'll be living in independent dwellings, you know, with multiple stories and indoor swimming pools and all the rest. That's not the concept at all. It means where you're living now is temporary. You are troubled. Be comforted. It won't be this way forever. There will be a day when you will be in your abiding place, your permanent dwelling place, a room, and you won't have an independent building, a mansion down the street from other believers. No, there's plenty of room in one house. We will all be under the one roof of our Father. Every believer will have an abiding place in our Father's house, you see. So the essence of heaven is not a mansion. It's not material stuff. It is it is relationship. We'll be dwelling together as family. And our Father's abode has room for all of us. Now, I think the Lord, in saying what he said here, uh, is likely referring to an architectural style, a building style that was prevalent in his day and which even takes place in the Middle East today. Uh, people in the Middle East then and today would live as extended families. So when a uh, young man went off and was fortunate enough to find someone who accepted his proposal, he would bring her back to his father's house and they would build under the same roof a room, apartment, or a floor, one on top of another, to accommodate the extended family members. So take a look at this little photo. This is from a Druze village, D-R-U-Z-E, which is a special uh, people group in Israel, very near and dear to the hearts of those who have gone there, Jonathan being one. They're an Arabic-speaking a group, but they're citizens of Israel, and they've welcomed us into their uh, community, though they are a closed community. And uh, I wanted you just to get an idea. It's not the best picture in the world, but can you see each of those houses? Um, 
It's one extended family in each. And a lot of people wonder, why are these people always building and leaving their construction unfinished? Well, that's a function of this newly married member of the family uh, coming up with enough money to finish the floor on which he and his new bride would live. So I think that's what the Lord had in mind in saying what he did. We will all be dwelling in a permanent abiding places and rooms in our Father's house. And so uh, this is the comfort, you see, the Lord is offering to those whose hearts are troubled. He says, in, in my Father's house, there are many, many dwelling places. In other words, he's saying, be comforted by this. There's room for you then who are very troubled now. Uh, the believer, you, are you a believer? You will in no wise being turn, be turned away. It's ironic, Jesus was turned away from an overcrowded place in Bethlehem, and yet his followers, not a one of us, will be turned away from an overcrowded heaven. You know why? Because there are plenty of rooms in our Father's house. Heaven is a place, you see, in which many abiding places, many rooms will be available. There will be rooms available in heaven who has closed the door to you here? What rejection message have you received? What significant other has literally or figuratively closed the door of their homes or hearts to you? I want to tell you that will no longer be the case when you approach heaven's doors. These are the words of comfort the Lord is offering to troubled hearts. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. He is saying, he doesn't have to do this. He is saying, I'm not lying. If I was lying about all this, if I'm making up, I wouldn't have told you this. I'm going away. That's what he says, to prepare a place for you. Now, when Jesus departed from this world, this temporary place of trouble, he went out in front of us to prepare a permanent place for us in his father's house. Some translations therefore refer to him and actually have this word, you might have it in yours, forerunner. What a grand and glorious word. It was used of various ones in the ancient Roman army. These would be, the forerunners would be reconnaissance troops. Reconnaissance troops then now would go before the main body, body of the army and they would spy out the land before them to see what obstacles and threats are in the way so that the main body can now follow in relative safety. And that word is used right here of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you see? He went, this is what he did. He, Jesus, blazed the trail, went out before us carving out a way for us to heaven so that we might safely and securely one day follow in his steps. Those of you who are experiencing trouble now, please be comforted by this, your future. The best is yet to come. There are many rooms in our Father's house, and Jesus says, this is what he's done. He's gone before us to unlock the rooms to our dwelling places in heaven. That's what he's doing right now. Look up from the throes of this life. Consider Jesus. Remember your eternal reality. What you are going through now is not forever. Now, we are not yet there. We are not home yet. Therefore, you don't feel at home. Therefore, you feel a little shaky, unstable, and 
Well, you feel troubled. Well, you ought to, because the Bible refers to you, if you're a believer, the Bible refers to you as an alien, a stranger, a sojourner. The Bible says this place is not where your citizenship lies. The Bible makes it clear you're a citizen of heaven. It's no wonder you feel uncomfortable here. The minute you get to feel real uncomfortable here, that's when you ought to get nervous. Why are you so comfortable in a strange and foreign land? This is not our home. We have work to do. We heard about the kinds of things Christians ought to be in the business of doing. We heard about that earlier, but we're passing through, folks, and therefore, if you're feeling troubled and uncomfortable here, you are uh, uh, verifying the fact that this is not your home. And so, uh, Jesus offers, it seems to me, two things to provide comfort to our troubled hearts. One, he offers a commandment to trust him, just trust him. And two, he offers a confirmation of our place in heaven. And then he adds this final verse for tonight, verse three. If I go, see the word if, better translated since, since. Since I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. So in essence, the Lord is saying to those of us who are his and whose hearts are troubled, I will come back and I will take you to be with me. Please be comforted by that. Those of you who are grieving the loss of a loved one, those of you who are faced with very weighty family concerns, I will come back and take you to be with me. Press on, and in the present, trust me, lean into me, somehow manage to shift the trouble from your shoulders onto mine, and always remember, this is temporary. I'm coming back. I will take you to be with me. Now, the Lord is not merely saying, I'm going to give you directions to my Father's house. I'm going to leave you with a map. Oh, no, 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 no. He is saying, I'm coming back. I'm not giving you directions. I'm coming back to get you, and I'm going to take you. I'm not telling you turn right here and left there. I'm telling you I'm coming back, and I'm going to take you so that where I am, you may be also. And then, not until then, but then, yeah, then you'll feel at home. Then we'll be at home. Then we will be in our Father's house. Then we will be with Jesus. All kinds of fanciful speculations about what heaven is like. This for sure is what heaven is like. Heaven is where Jesus is. He's the light of the world. He's life. We'll be in his presence forevermore. His presence is what makes heaven heavenly. It's not a bad thing to wonder about what heaven will be like, but it, it ought to be enough for us to know for certain that we will be there forever with Jesus. Now, I want to point out something uh, we've spoken about in a series some time ago. It's an aspect of something in the ancient Jewish marriage customs. Here's how it went. If a young man found a woman to whom he proposed, and she said, yes, I accept your proposal, they became betrothed at that point, but they would not yet live under the same roof. The woman to whom the man was betrothed was left to continue living in the home of her parents. 
He went off. What did he do? He went back to his father's house. And he and his father would take time preparing a new place for this newly established relationship. It could be a room. It could be another floor. It could be a kind of apartment in the father's house. When the job was completed, he would return for his betrothed wife to bring her to this new place. When would he come? Ah, see, she would not know. But it would be such a climactic event that he would come oftentimes with a shofar or trumpet blaring. And she would be excited. She would know what time of day, even the night. In other words, she would be living with a spirit of expectation. The return of my husband, the one to whom I am betrothed, could come at any time. And when she heard the trumpet blast, she was just filled with excitement. She had been preparing herself to consummate the relationship with the one to whom she is betrothed. And according to Jewish tradition, the man was not permitted to take this woman from one place to a place of lesser value and delight. He had to ask her to leave one place for a far better one. Can you see how this is paralleled exactly by what the Lord is saying here? We are the bride of Christ. He's referred to as our heavenly husband. He has left us now for some 2,000 years. My goodness, he spoke the world into existence in just a few days. If he's taken 2,000 years to construct our abiding place, holy Toledo, it's going to be pretty cool. And one day he'll come back for us. When will it be? Well, the scriptures say... He will come with a shout and a trumpet blast. We don't know when it is. It's called the rapture of the church. We don't know when it is. And we're supposed to be readying ourselves as a purified bride without spot or wrinkle, waiting for the day when we hear that heavenly trumpet. And then the Lord to whom we are betrothed comes and takes us from this place to offer us a far better one. Where is it? It's a dwelling place in his father's house. You see it? Now, I don't want to minimize the sometimes weighty and overwhelming troubles that come our way and that some of you are dealing with even tonight. But folks, look up. Your salvation is drawing closer by the moment. You will not have to deal with all the throes of this life. You'll be in a permanent dwelling in your father's house. Take comfort in that. Now, um, we should take comfort in knowing this. As he is preparing a place for us, he is preparing us for that place. That explains what you're going through because he can use the very troubles with, with which you are troubled to prepare you for that place. He's preparing a special place for a special people, a set-apart, holy, and sanctified people. And he readies us for that through times like this, Bible study. That's really good. But I think he even shapes us up and prepares us in a more striking way for that special place through trials and tribulations, through the adversities of life. 
They obligate us to cling to Jesus for blessing. And we say, as did Jacob eons ago, I will not let you go until you bless me because who else can we hang on to? Who else is sovereign? Who else is good as he is? So anything that comes your way, when prosperity comes, praise God. When adversity comes, praise God even more because through adversity, he can accomplish the mission of readying us for our Father's house even more readily than in times of prosperity. And so heaven, folks, is this prepared place for a prepared people. In closing, I ask a haunting rhetorical question. Please answer it honestly to yourself. Are you prepared? If you're a believer, you're in union with Christ Jesus, the forerunner who has already blazed the trail to heaven for you. You're prepared. In spite of your situation, a medical diagnosis, a concern for a loved one going through difficult times, I think of you, Patty, a concern for an elderly mother and wondering about her care, and grieving over a dad, Greg, and countless other situations. Thank God you're here together. This is where you belong when you're hurt. This is the family of God. You don't have to put on a happy face. These are real struggles. But let me tell you something. In spite of the weightiness of what you all experience, if you know the Lord Jesus, you are prepared for that special place. And the Lord has already, by your faith, unlocked the door to the room of your permanent dwelling place in your father's house. But apart from Christ, in spite of the fact that your life may even be going smoothly, then you're entirely unprepared apart from Christ. You see, he came the first time so that we by faith would be wedded to him. He came the first time to judge sin in his body on the cross. The second time, he will come to judge sinners. But if the sinner has rightly responded to his first time, if the sinner has said yes to his proposal, it essentially is a proposal to be wedded to him. That's what he offered to us, a covenant bond like unto marriage. If we've said yes, oh Lord Jesus, you're the mediator between me and your father, and I, I accept your proposal. If, we've, if we rightly have responded to his first coming, then we are prepared for his second coming. In fact, we look forward to it with joy. We say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if you've not responded rightly to his first coming, you are woefully unprepared for his inevitable and certain second coming. I beseech you tonight, get prepared. Say, Lord Jesus, now I take seriously. Now I hear your offer of marriage. Now I hear your proposal. I'm not very attractive. My sin has rendered me unholy and even unattractive. And yet you say, in spite of it, I'll have you as mine just as you are. But you must have me as your personal savior. If you say, I will, I accept your proposal. You are as prepared as you possibly could be for the imminent second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could happen in our day. Be prepared. For we do not know when that trumpet blast will occur. And at that point, it's too late. It's too late. 
Now is the day to take seriously the offer of salvation. I beseech you, whatever catastrophe may befall a Christian, it's not nearly as tragic as to be apart from Christ forevermore. We will get over and pass through whatever catastrophic events are permitted by God today. Those of us who are believers, we'll get through it. We'll get past it. And it'll all be over one day. But for you, if there be any here who have not accepted Christ, you will suffer the catastrophe of an eternal separation from a family relationship with Almighty God, from a dwelling place in a house characterized by peace and joy and safety. No, your destiny is that place characterized by weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not over-dramatizing things, but if you're not under the roof of Heavenly Father, then whose roof are you under throughout eternity? Don't do it to yourself. Before you leave tonight, say, pray with me right now, would you? Let's pray. Say, Lord Jesus, I get it. I've sinned. You've come to save me from the penalty thereof. I accept. Come into my life, Savior, my Savior, granting me forgiveness of sin, renovating me from the inside out and preparing for me an abiding place in your Father's house. Until you come again, Lord Jesus, let me be about your business as a bride, preparing herself for the exciting, suspenseful, imminent, certain return of her beloved. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Make me to be part of of the bride of Christ, you being my heavenly husband. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing my prayer. In your name we pray, amen.